This is a Momentum Media production. Nerd alert! Property Nerds, <laughs> the home for data-driven property investors, where we uncover Australia's hot and cold markets, latest headlines and trends. Welcome back for another episode of the Property Nerds podcast. It's your host, Arjun Paliwal here. And uh, we aren't joined by Lee from Hills Finance today, but Lee will be joining us on another episode. And today I actually have another guest here with me who will be sharing the mic and I will go into who we've got on, but in terms of what's in store, forecasts, data, predictions, thoughts, all the exciting stuff everyone loves here on the Property Nerds podcast. But this is the first episode of 2024 for us. And I've got some really exciting news in terms of what's in store for 2024. So big announcement, as you know, we've all been having the once a month episodes. And whilst we were appreciating all the, the fan mail, the requests for topics, the requests for guests, the biggest request that kept coming on was, we want more. Monthly is not enough. And we just want more. So I thought, okay, naturally, the next thing would be like, what's more? Is weekly too much? Is fortnightly too much? Obviously, a lot of preparation goes into these shows because we want to make sure it's quality. We want to make sure the the data that we're bringing on, the guests that we're bringing on are very credible. And then the research and findings that we share from Investigate is all all shared with the you know end in mind of enriching your journey of learning on the show, as well as your journey of discovering what's happening around Australia. So um, we decided that in 2024, we'd tune to that number one bit of feedback saying, we just want more and we'll be kicking off 2024 with fortnightly episodes. So this is going to be some very exciting stuff because we'll be going through a lot more research, a lot more data on the back end, bringing more guests on. Last year in 20, 2023, now I'm forgetting the three of the four parts was just kicking off. There's a lot of uh, different guests that we had on that you know were some of our most listened to episodes. So it's what you want more of. And we're excited to bring in 2024, the kickoff of fortnightly episodes to really start to bring you more data and research around what's happening in the markets. Another thing we've got going on is actually the growth of Investigate team. As you know, we we won Buyers Agency of the Year for 2023 and the growth has continued to keep going at Investigate and we've got more roles hitting the internet. So a mix of roles from assistant buyers agents or a property acquisition analysts to portfolio strategists. And they're all going to be showing up in the next four weeks. So uh, the portfolio strategist being the first one, we'll be throwing them on platforms like Seek and and so forth. Check it out on LinkedIn. If you're not on LinkedIn with me, connect. It's Arjun Paliwal. And for spelling purposes, that's A-R-J-U-N and last name P-A-L-I-W-A-L. We'll be having more roles go there. We're excited for the growth ahead. And why I mentioned on today's episode is I was actually having a moment to reflect and go, hold on a minute, like more than half, if not just over half actually, of our team is built up of those who said we'd found you on the podcast or we'd listen to your you know, your audio, we'd watched a, a video on YouTube or we'd researched a paper or their actual clients. And that's pretty special. So I thought, hey, why not give a shout out to some of the growth that you know we've got going on ahead in these podcasts? So it gives anyone an opportunity who's passionate about building, you know, portfolio strategies, helping people envision the scale from one to the next, or actualizing their wealth goals and seeing it, you know, mapped out. That role is going to pop up in the next coming weeks on you know the LinkedIn page of myself as well as Seek when you search up Investigate. So keep an eye out, and if you are 
keen to join the team of Investikit. We look forward to seeing seeing your application. But 2024 has lots going on to kick off the new year. And when it comes to property data, uh, there are very few people in the country that have uh, resumes like our guest has today. We are joined today by Cameron Kusher, and I hope I've pronounced the last name right, and I'll hand it over to him to correct me on that soon. Uh, but Cameron comes from a background that you know really lives and breathes property data. So a fellow property nerd, if he doesn't mind us uh, calling him that today. Cameron has had roles all across from you know PRD nationwide as a, as a research manager in, in the city of Brisbane to going into the likes of CoreLogic, a very familiar name for many as the head of research across Australia. I've been a follower of Cam's for many years in LinkedIn, stalking his post, learning what he has to share with us and, and constantly enriching my take-in of, of property data and improving in how I analyze it through his thoughts and opinions and what he sees. And now Cam is uh, heading up the group at REA Group or PropTrack for many, for many people who know as the executive manager for economic research. So we're talking forecasts for 2024, what's happening around the nation, some trends, some what-if scenarios. We'll be going into it, see where the conversation takes us. But Cameron, my friend, welcome to the show and and uh, welcome to the Property Notes. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Arjun. Mate, I think it's uh, best to start off with the latest research that you released to end the year. And I think this is a topic on everyone's mind when new year kicks around obviously the most popular definitely no doubt from the clicks and the listens uh what's going to happen in in 2024 and i see the home price index the supply analysis that you all do as well what is some of the biggest trends that many people are probably wanting to know about 2024 in your opinion with so much happening yeah i think if we look at 2023 to start with it was a, a year that most people weren't predicting I know our forecast was that prices were going to fall in 2023, and I know a lot of other people were forecasting that as well. And that was basically based on the fact that borrowing capacities had fallen so much, but that never came to fruition. Um, We continued to see very low volumes of stock coming to the market. Obviously, there wasn't a lot of demand for brand new homes because there was such a premium price for that stock. And we go into 2024 and it's fairly similar, although I would point out in places like Melbourne and Sydney, we've seen quite a significant increase in the number of properties coming to market for sale from about the middle of last year. And that did over the second half of last year see a result in a slowdown in the rate of price growth. Looking forward to this year, you know, we're expecting prices to continue to rise, even if you look at those borrowing capacities, you look at interest rates and you think, you know, maybe it shouldn't be doing that. But the market has a lot of momentum. There's still very low volumes of, of stock for sale in certain markets. The new housing market is still extremely challenged. There's still a very wide premium between existing house prices and unit prices and new unit prices and new house prices. So for developers out there trying to convince people to pay that premium, there's always a premium for new properties, but it's a very wide premium at the moment. So we think that people are going to show a strong preference for existing homes over new homes. People are going to show a strong preference for properties that are fully renovated, that they can just walk into and not have to do anything for. In saying all of that, we do anticipate that price growth this year will be somewhat slower than it was last year. And that's just because housing affordability is getting very stretched. And also just just more generally that we've had a very strong run up in prices in most parts of the country since the beginning of the pandemic. 
What you touched on is a, a lot of, I guess, reflection when you talked about 2023 not going perhaps what you'd predicted. And that's something rare of people to do, to start off the call and go, hey, you know what? I kind of didn't get it right here, but let's talk about what happened. And so I appreciate that in the first part, because I think it's important to now take that step back to back then and go, what surprised you? Because I think really um, you've had a long career in the space and this has been really like there are always learning moments. I find myself like today, I saw a chart and I was like, wow, that was interesting. What were some of the most, I guess, eye-opening things that you said, hey, over 2023, this didn't go to those predictions, but I learned this over that time, which is something unique to maybe the times of today. Was there something that stood out in particular? I think the big one was if we look at late 2022, we were seeing interest rates were moving pretty much every single month. And they were in some instances moving in quite large chunks. And as that happened, what we saw is an ongoing drift lower in the number of sales that was happening in the market. We were seeing demand for properties ease quite significantly. And we were also seeing prices start to slow or fall in, in, in most parts of the country. And I guess our viewing of that was that, okay, well, that's likely to continue. We are expecting interest rates to continue to rise. Borrowing capacities are going to reduce on the back of that. And we probably also thought that there would be more stock come to the market sooner, and that would also alleviate any price pressures in the market. But of course, none of that happened. We got to sort of February of last year. There was a strong rebound in sales. We started to see a lot more demand out there for housing. Uh, auction clearance rates were a lot stronger. And that volume of stock coming to the market was still extremely low. So there wasn't any sense that people had to sell. And, and we thought, I guess, that we would see more of that pressure from those higher interest rates forcing people to have to sell their property. So I think for me, that was the uh, the biggest learning. You can punch all of this data into a model and, and have a look at what was happening late in 2022, and it would tell you the property prices should have fallen. But you get on the ground and you see what's happening, and that lower rate of increase in interest rates, you know, that huge amount of migration coming into the country, driving demand for housing making it harder to rent. So more people will start, first home buyers started to come back into the market last year. And I think, you know, there's, there's definitely a place for financial models, but you can learn a lot about what's really happening in the market by going and talking to the participants in the market. And speaking of the participants of the market, we're seeing something interesting emerge in recent times, which is the big comeback of property investors. And from your data and what you're seeing and how that might play into 2024, what are you sensing at PropTrack to say, hey, what are property investors seeing now that they might not have been seeing a little while ago? Yeah, I was actually looking at something earlier today for a presentation I've got coming up, just looking at the inner city area of Melbourne, for example. So the gross rental yield on a unit in inner city Melbourne, you know, 12 months ago was 4.9%. It's 5.5% now. So this astronomical growth in rents that we're seeing at the moment, so Melbourne rents over the past year were up about 18%. This strong rental growth is making investment in property look a lot more attractive. Now, prices are still rising. You know, some people aren't looking for rental returns. They're looking for that capital growth. We've still got this deficiency of housing. We don't have a lot of additional housing being built at the moment. We've got approvals down at the lowest they've been in a decade. But also, interest rates now, they are the highest they've been in 12 years. But higher interest rates actually make your tax deductibility, if you are trying to negatively gear, um, superior. So I, I suspect that now, people with tax problems are going to start looking at negatively geared investment properties again because interest rates are higher 
And the tax deductions you can get from those properties are so much greater now that we do have these higher interest rates. So I think we will continue to see more investors coming into the market, which ultimately should be a good thing for the rental market because we desperately need more rental stock. The other thing I think we're going to see more of is first home buyers coming back into the market, which we've already started to see that happening as well. And that's really a byproduct of how tight this rental market is. The people with the means to make that leap out of renting into home ownership are going to be increasingly enticed to do that because, you know, it is going to cost them probably a little bit more than it is going to be to rent, but they want that certainty. And you just don't have that in the rental market at the moment. You don't know if the landlord's going to sell. You don't know if they're going to kick you out. You know, if you do have to leave your rental property, you're competing with 35, 40 other people for every single rental inspection you go for. I just think people are going to want more and more certainty. And again, that that tightness of the rental market should drive more people to want to invest in residential property. Yeah, you've talked about a lot of like flow-on impacts that start with you know, certain indicators that maybe show up a little bit more. One of the things that we've really seen from modeling has been how really early on rental yield can be a certain moving parameter that has many of those domino effects. Like you said, like rental yield rising in Melbourne, what does that do? An investor goes, well, I haven't seen yields like that in Melbourne for a long time. What if interest rates went down and the yields keep rising like that again? But then what does an in- renter think? Hey, um, I'm paying a lot of rent, but the prices haven't moved up as much in Melbourne for sale price. Could this be a time for me to transition? And do I want to keep paying this much rent? And they keep increasing it on me each year. And so it's like all these flows on that can, you know, start with rental yield movements in certain directions. You've talked about a really good starting point, which changes that perception. One thing that I've really picked up a lot, Cam, from what you said is around something that you saw earlier, which was the borrowing capacity, the finance trends. And it talked to me about the word like net, the word net came up more than ever because borrowing capacity went down 30 to 40%, depending on calculators that you used, but finance as a take-up didn't move 30 to 40% down. It moved in the twenties. And then you see sales volumes declined in some areas, but it didn't move much as down as say borrowing capacities did. So it always actually was whilst negative movements and net positive, like there was this net gap that was there. And so when you think of these net gaps, and you think of some trends emerging, I always think of, yes, there's pressures on households for costs, but then there's also this other side where it comes to potential interest rate declines being in front of us, potential, or not quite potential, but tax cuts being in front of us. It's a challenging world to see both sides, the cost and affordability, but also the changing winds on that. What do you envision those two things may do, if any, to the markets as potential X factors or non-X factors, in your opinion, for 2024, things like interest rates looming in front of us that could decline or tax cuts that are coming up ahead as well? Well, obviously, both of those things are going to improve people's borrowing capacity. In terms of interest rates, I think at the absolute earliest, we would get a rate cut November this year. But my personal view is a rate cut probably early to mid-2025 is more likely. But you know, if inflation comes down much quicker than anyone's expecting, we could get it could get it cut earlier. And I think people with a mortgage would be very happy about that. In terms of our forecasting, the stage three tax cuts certainly did come into consideration and now they have changed a little bit. So, you know, we we saw that mid-year, particularly higher net worth individuals were going to be given, you know, a cut of around nine and a half thousand dollars a year. And that was going to increase people's borrowing capacity and potentially make people more inclined to go and try and upgrade in the market 
or even, you know, come and invest in the residential property market as well. So I think those two factors are definitely going to be positive for both transaction activity and potentially pushing property prices higher because people do have that increase in borrowing capacity. Yeah, that borrowing capacity flow-on will definitely be evident from those two. Um, going deeper into your forecasts, there was some commentary also around the likes of regional Queensland and regional South Australia. I wanted to bring these two up in particular, not so much around like where they might go as a percentage movement, but more around one of the things that we often hear in our own circle or just even barbecue chats is investors who get challenged a little bit when they see a location that doesn't, you know, smell like corporate jobs everywhere or large towels, towers everywhere, or lots of people flying in planes, ins and outs, but then yet they perform like the regional Queenslands, like the regional South Australia's that did really well in recent times. When you start to help those, I guess, opinions that are learning a little bit or a little bit uneducated that want to learn more about why these areas are growing as they have been growing, the first thing they say is, what are the drivers? When you start getting asked questions like that about areas that don't look or feel like they should be growing to the common eye, but they do, what are some of the common themes that you start to see at PropTrack that go, hey, this area is starting to show that capital growth and it has performed because of? Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors. So you think about some parts of Queensland, you know, a lot of the regional markets, blue collar jobs, the mining and resources sector is obviously a big driver. In parts of regional South Australia, that can be as well. But what I would typically look for is a diversified economy. So for a lot of these areas, it's not just about to do perform well. It's not just about one industry. If you think about some of the far north Queensland, you know, tourism's obviously really positive in those areas and a big driver, but you've also got other things like, you know, research, you've got agriculture. So it's about if you're going to invest in these regional markets and if you're looking at them going, well, why is that performing so well? You need to definitely dig a little bit deeper and see, you know, have a look at what the unemployment rate is. Have a look at what people do in those areas and then go and look at a, a broader sort of international or, or even national level and say, you know, okay, agriculture is a big driver. What's happened with agricultural prices? Commodities are a big driver, mining and resources sector. What sort of investments going on in that area? What are coal prices doing? What are iron ore prices doing at the moment? And that can really give you a much better understanding of why these areas seemingly that you wouldn't think should be booming are booming. But quite often you'll find it's not linked to one thing. There's quite a number of things that are, are driving those economies. And typically they'll have very low unemployment rates and they'll have even, you know, government investment. So they'll be playing a new hospital there or a new science precinct or something like this. So you really need to get out there and have a look at all the information that is available, tell you what's going on in these local markets. Yeah, good call out for a holistic analysis rather than the old you know, just where's the jobs at and thinking everything needs to be just corporate towers and suits and, and dresses everywhere. My friend, you, you you in your reports in the December release of listings, that's definitely played a, a core factor into predictions for 2024. And one of the biggest questions we have both at Investicate and Property Nerds audience, when are these listings going to start showing up? Because there's two parts. One is the buyer part. Like, hey, hold on a minute. How do you even buy something that's this tight? Then the second part is, well, every time some doomsday scenario comes up, you look at the listings trend and you're just like, it's not showing. 
It's not showing. And you don't see any weakness. You don't see things come off. Brisbane, Adelaide, Perth amongst the capital cities, and then the regional trends of listings that have been going lower. I know this is a broad question, but if we take a step back and maybe even go back in time a little to figure out what's driving this massive tightness and actual listings of established supply for sale, because this isn't construction. This isn't for rent. This is all the houses that were always there with the same people that were always there, or you could argue maybe not the same people, but then just deciding we won't transact for the last few years. And it's been lower and lower and lower since what, 2019? Well, I mean, we're a listings business, so we do look at listings quite closely. And we can see from about 2014 onwards, there's been this ongoing reduction in the number of new listings coming to the market. Since 2019, there's been a massive reduction in the total number of properties coming to the market. A few things we're noticing, properties are selling quicker. So the number of days a property is advertised on our site for is meaningfully lower over the last few years than it was previously. And I think part of that is buyers are a lot more informed when they come to buy a property now. There's a lot more information about, you know, what's happened with recent sales. You can get valuation estimates of what a property is worth. So when someone's coming to a real estate agent, they know a lot more about the property and about what's sold. And I think that makes the selling process a little bit easier. In terms of why we're continuing to see fewer properties, it's a, it's a real head scratcher for us. And it's one we try to answer because ultimately for our business, we want more people putting properties on the market. And I think there's a few things. Obviously, firstly, the cost of transacting has increased largely because of stamp duty. But also, you know, there's quite a few real estate agents out there now that are asking for more commission than they used to. Equally, there's some that are cutting commission. But it's a big move these days. Um, and, and I think it almost becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy for a lot of people. So because the total amount of stock on the market is so low, and if you look at that, there's a lot of people I would characterize as unmotivated sellers. They've had their property listed on the market for you know, six, 12 months. They've made no adjustment to the price. They're not really trying to sell this property. They're basically saying, if I get what I want, I'll sell. Otherwise, it just stays there. So I think the big challenge that we consistently hear of is I can sell my property. I know I can get a decent price for it, but where am I going to live? There's nothing else for me to buy. The rental market is so tight at the moment. And yes, the rental market's a real challenge for renters, but I think people forget that oftentimes when you sell a property, you need to transition through the rental market, whether it be for six or 12 months. So if people don't have an option of as to where to live while they're looking for their next property, then they're going to be pretty reluctant to actually go and sell. And I think in a market that's been as strong as it has been over the last few years, people are worried about being out of the market. You know, if you were out of the market for 12 months back in 21, 22 in, in places like Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, you missed out on 15, 20% price growth as well. So I think these are all factors that weigh on people's mind. And, and obviously, you know, We've come out quite often and said stamp duty is a big thing that discourages people from moving because it's a big upfront cost. And, you know, it, it discourages people from downsizing when they need to downsize. It discourages people from upsizing when they need to. And I think also it, in some ways it delays people from getting into the market because they know that it is a big impost. I think people are more inclined to try and buy a property that's going to last them for 10, 15 years when they are entering the market because they don't want to have to face that cost again. Yeah, and then when you bring up the challenges you talk about too, it just seems so obvious now, like struggle to construct and feel confident about the building to get it to completion or get the right one and not 
have the builder go under or something from the sentiment there. And then look online and you see others not quite selling it, selling it the same as well in terms of established listings. I think one other point there is, and it's not something we've proven out, but I think if you look from about 2013 onwards, there was a massive boom in new housing construction in Australia as well. And in some ways, we think maybe that took away from the existing listings as well, because more people were having a preference to buy a brand new property rather than the existing property, which made those properties a little bit more difficult to sell. It's a bit of a different story now. Not many people are looking to buy brand new properties. They want to buy existing properties, but we're not really seeing those trends break. Yes, as I mentioned, we've seen more properties coming to the market in Sydney and Melbourne uh, since the middle of last year, but it really hasn't been replicated, uh, particularly in places like Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Which is a good segue to some of the growth that we're seeing in those cities and what you forecasted is another strong year based on the Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth fundamentals. I mean, Adelaide and Brisbane seem to be an interesting one that keeps coming up because we all know Perth hasn't had a good run for some time and this really is the new run that's emerged, right? But I mean, with Brisbane and Adelaide continuing on or keep on keeping on, I think it reminds me of that time when Hobart in 2015, 16 started going off and it went for like a good five years. But every two years or year and a half, someone was like, oh, it's done its time now. It's had its thing. As the listings business and seeing what prop track starts to see first, what are some of the earlier signs you start to see when you keep seeing this growth occur and occur and occur and you go, okay, now it's truly turning a corner. And now Brisbane and Adelaide are going to calm the farm and, and not be as busy as before. I think the big thing for us is that there's just still such a low volume of stock available for sale in both of those markets. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but from memory, the number of properties on the market in Brisbane and Adelaide is down about 35 or 40% from its decade average. So, And at the same time, we're still seeing a heightened level of interest in buying property. So you've got all these people competing for quite a small number of properties available for sale. And in my mind, until we see a uh, an increase in those numbers of properties coming to the market, and I haven't got a good sense that it's uh, it's happening. And again, still getting fed the same lines when I go out and talk to real estate agents and people about why aren't people listing, nothing else to buy, nowhere to move to, nowhere to rent. I think until we start to see a meaningful increase in the number of properties coming to the market in those cities, then I think we're going to continue to see quite strong price growth. Now, of course, there is there is a chance. We know that uh, the smaller capital cities tend to lag what's happened in Sydney and Melbourne, and we did see that increase in supply coming in Sydney and Melbourne over the second half of last year. So maybe that starts to happen this year, but there's not really any evidence of it happening yet. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Something's got to break that chain of the supply, isn't it? Because it seems to be that hamster wheel that's just going around of can't get that, can't get this, and this doesn't show up. Uh, mate, in terms of the supply trends, we obviously talked about those listings for sale in cities like Brisbane, Adelaide. There has been some green shoots show up, as you mentioned, in Sydney and Melbourne that have start to see the supply return, but also Tasmania, regional Victoria, and regional New South Wales. Are there any things there that you feel outside of perhaps the affordability that you think are translating and could translate to maybe some other markets? Like Tasmania seems to be an interesting one. It's had now some increase across all angles, whether it be vacancy for rent, whether it be construction, whether it be established listings for sale. So Tassie, last time I was in Tassie last year, what the feedback I was getting was 
that for the first, you know, prices had increased a lot over the last sort of five or six years. And now there was a lot of people wanting to take the profits that they've made out of their properties. If you look at Tassie, you've got lower levels of migration to Tasmania than you had previously, particularly internal migration. The economy is probably not quite as strong as it was. But also the thing that really drove that big surge in prices in, in Tassie uh, was the fact that it was so cheap. And it's no longer cheap. You know, it's it's now more expensive than Adelaide, more expensive than Perth, more expensive than Darwin. Not that dissimilar in price to places like Brisbane and Melbourne as well. If we think about Brisbane and Adelaide and some of those other markets, how I was talking about the fact that nothing was coming onto the market and people were reluctant to put their properties on the market, we were hearing the same thing 12 months ago in Sydney and Melbourne. And then we got to the middle of the year and that all changed. So that's that's why I'm always cautious that this could change direction in those cities and in Perth. It's just not evident yet. I No one's really been able to give me a good a good understanding of exactly why things changed in Sydney and Melbourne. My suspicion is that come mid-year last year, it looked like interest rates were going to peak. Now, obviously, we did get a couple more interest rate hikes, but that rate of increase in interest rates really slowed quite dramatically um, last year. And I think people felt like we were getting very close to that top of that interest rate cycle. So then they felt like, okay, now's the time to bring properties to the market. And perhaps that just hasn't flowed through into those smaller capital cities yet. But uh, but certainly from the middle of last year, we did see quite a lot more stock coming on in a lot of regional markets, in Hobart for sure, and in Sydney and in Melbourne. And again, the stable interest rate environment might just start giving people elsewhere that level of confidence to you know, start putting their properties back for sale. Again, though, a bit of an easing of that rental pressure would make it a little bit easier for people to make that decision, I feel like. Yeah, there's, I think there's like that rental market, no doubt, because I'm just imagining like the data aside, just the physical movement to go from home sale to home buy so effortlessly and perfectly is like one of the hardest things to do. And I can just imagine how much rental plays a part in that. But one other thing that's been a little bit interesting over the years, because my pre-property, I was in the banking space and bridging used to be a huge thing in the earlier decades of 2011, 12, 13, 14 before I started like 15, 16 to move into other roles. Do you feel like that was a big enough player to also perhaps change what's happened? Because bridging finance was something that could bridge that gap, hence the name, right? To allow people to buy, sell, because mobility from stamp duty seems to be a big thing as well. How much of an impact do you think some of those finance options being removed from the system have also maybe impacted people negatively? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you can still get bridging finance, but interest rates are very high now. So I think there's a big reluctance from people to do that. And as you said, I think people now are trying to line up that they sell their property, but they also have something to move into straight away. And it's it's extremely difficult to do that. Of course, there was, you know, the old old rule of thumb used to be that you, you know, you sold your property before you bought your property. But again, the state of the rental market at the moment is, well, that's great. Where am I going to go? So I think yeah. people are increasingly looking for longer settlement periods and things like that. But anyone that's moving to any home is going to be facing the same challenge that they're trying to get their other properties sold. They're coming off a, a rental agreement and they're probably pretty keen. When you buy a brand new home, I know in my experience, at least, I'm always pretty keen to get in there as quickly as I can. I get pretty excited and don't want to hang around in the old place any longer than I need to. So I think, um, you know, the cost of bridging finance and the availability of it is a real challenge along with that rental, what's happening with the rental market. 
Well, Cam, my last two pins for today's show, the first one is around affordability. It was mentioned multiple times today and has been mentioned in, you know, prop track publications and as well as, you know, some of the reports to talk about how this growth can't keep continuing. What's your viewpoint on affordability? Because I find it such a difficult thing to perfectly nail. We have census data that's too far and wide for incomes to be somewhat meaningfully tracked and generated perfectly. We have areas change a lot more and then incomes don't change that much more. We have mortgage borrowing capacity fall off, but then somehow finance take up goes back up. And then we have someone always saying for the last 50 years that Sydney and Melbourne aren't affordable, yet they have you know, growth rates like they do. Everyone's stance on it's different. Some of our research points to look at mortgage repayments and looking at them. But even if you use mortgage repayments in isolation, you would have picked many areas wrong of where they grow. How do you at PropTrack and the team start to go, let's look at affordability in this way. And we're sticking to it because there's a million ways to look at it, but we like looking at it this way. Yeah, I mean, the way we like to look at it is I think where affordability is the biggest challenge is for someone trying to enter the market. So when we're talking about affordability, we're talking about first-time buyers trying to get into the market. And, you know, the best kind of way to look at this is, you know, what's the typical wage of someone and then what can they actually afford in the market? And and um, middle of last year, we put out a, a housing affordability report and it did show that in it, you know, it's it's heavily affected by interest rates as well. But if you look at the number of properties that sold over the previous year that a first home buyer could afford, it was pretty much at record low levels. I know it was definitely at record low levels in Sydney, uh, in New South Wales and Victoria, and it was very close in the other states. So, you know, affordability is a function of how quickly wages are growing. It's also how quickly property prices are growing. It, it's also a function of what's happening with interest rates. Because you look at the price of a property, obviously it was very high historically. It was historically high during the pandemic and you'd say housing's unaffordable, but interest rates were also the lowest they've ever been. So that did boost people's borrowing capacity and let more people come into the market. Now we've got the highest interest rates we've had in 12 years and housing affordability is worse than it was any time since 1990. And that was included times when interest rates were 18%. So a lot of it is driven by where interest rates are and also how quickly wages are growing compared to how quickly property prices are growing. Yeah, I think that affordability comment there has has definitely like should make anyone listening to this realize that you know Cam pointed out an interesting part how some of the worst affordability, yet we still saw price increases in 2023 recover most of those losses. So I think this forever, every year, I figure out like there's this one thing that I keep going away with every year. And the thing is not one indicator is the source of truth to everything. And you've got to put all the pieces together because, you know, had someone gone back a few years, someone would have said fixed rate cliff equals, then someone would have gone back a few years earlier, interest rate, interest only cliff equals. Then someone goes to COVID and it's like borders shut, jobs, unemployment equals. And then someone comes to last year and goes, interest rates increasing, therefore borrowing capacity falls, therefore this equals. It's like when one buyer base stood out or went away, first home buyer affordability, another buyer base came in or another buyer base, seller base didn't want to sell as much. So I think people, you know, listening to the show today, I think the biggest learning from that particular question is that affordability, I mean, in its simplest form, if someone transacts with the credit laws that we have, it is therefore affordable to someone because they have completed a transaction. And it's just the hardest part is figuring out who that someone is. 
at all times to make predictable trends, which is why you know people like yourself, Cam, and many others make trends that are holistic, that capture supply, construction, pricing of money, affordability. Would you say that's a, a good roundup of that affordability piece specifically? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we can talk to we blue in the face about housing affordability, but people are still out. If people are still out there transacting property, someone's finding it affordable enough to go and make that transaction. So I think that's a it's a really good and important point. Certainly, from your individual perspective, you might go housing's unaffordable, but until we see sales volumes collapsing and prices having a meaningful fall, well, then not everybody is in that same position. But certainly when we look at any of the metrics of housing affordability, they're quite stretched at the moment, given how much property prices have risen over the last couple of years, how much more moderate wage growth has been than inflation and property price increases, and also where interest rates are relative to what they've been over the last few years. So it's definitely, you know, housing's always a hard market. It's always an expensive prospect to buy your first home or upgrade in the market. But it probably is a little bit more challenging at the moment than it has been. But plenty of people are still finding a way to do it. Well, Cam, I promised you, last question for me. In 2024, there are many data providers out there from the prop track to core logics to everyone. But there's always something unique each one carries that allows them, like, for example, your own database and your listing site, which is so powerful. When you see some of the data you've seen in your transition from core logic to where you are here at prop track today, what are some of the things that you found like, hey, you know, I didn't realize until I'm here on the other side how important this was, just so people can be intrigued, I guess, by the nerdiness of behind the scenes, what exists in PropTrack that is something that perhaps you didn't see in your experiences prior that you see today of the importance of it when analyzing property markets? Yeah, I think the, the answer there is the consumer behavior sort of data. So looking at, you know, what are people looking at? Is it two-bedroom apartments? Is it four-bedroom houses? And how is that shifting over time? And obviously also the other one is the measures of demand. You can't really capture that unless you've got the biggest audience of people looking at property. And, and certainly at realestate.com.au, we do have that. And, uh, you know, just being able to see, you know, how many people are, are interested in this property? How many people are inquiring about this property? I think it really tells a powerful story about what's happening. And I think in a lot of instances, it really explains what happens in the market. If we go back to early 2020 when lockdowns were happening and everyone was worried that property prices were going to fall off a cliff, we saw the level of demand for housing and the number of people looking on our site drop for about three weeks. And then it started to rebound really strongly. And you know that kind of gave us that level of comfort that this is not going to be as catastrophic as some people are expecting because you know, people are stuck at home, interest rates are very low, and what are they doing with all that spare time? They're looking at property. They're looking for something new to move to. And uh, and we certainly saw that happen through that pandemic period. That's definitely an Aussie thing. Hey, you're all shut down. The world's locked out away from you. What do you look at? We look at property. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, Cam, thank you so much for your time today and running through from the index and what's forecasted for 2024, as well as some of the, the research and just the common questions and myths and things that we go through that you've helped unpack. Uh, mate, look forward to having you on the show again in the future, no doubt. And for everyone tuning in, if you'd like to get your hands on some of the research that Cam's been talking through, just jump on proptrack.com.au. They've got an amazing insights hub over there, which just covers so much rich data from listings, reports, to in 
indexes, and it helps us get that first glance of the people who see the first glance of property investors in Australia. So, Cam, thank you again and appreciate your time on the show. Thanks for having me, Arjun. Yes. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. Game over.